new concerns about self-driving cars after a fatal crash involving one of those cars. After hearing about the news, Uber pulled its self-driving cars off the road in all of its test cities. Welcome to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and this is part two of our episode looking at the development of driverless vehicles. On the 18th of March 2018, an autonomous vehicle operated by Uber struck and killed Elaine Herzberg while she was crossing a dark street at night in Tempe, Arizona. It was the first time an autonomous vehicle had killed anybody, and it shook the entire industry. The National Transportation Safety Board is sending investigators to Tempe, Arizona. Police are still figuring out who was at fault, but there are serious questions now because this was part of Uber's pilot program to see whether this works at all. A human operator was inside behind the wheel, but the car was in the self-driving mode. This dash cam video shows the horrifying seconds before a self-driving Uber hit and killed a pedestrian in Arizona. Our investigation did not show at this time that there were significant signs of the vehicle slowing down. And as they piece this together, that video is both answering questions and raising new ones. It does show how difficult it was to see the victim on that dark road, but these autonomous cars are designed to detect obstacles even in the dark. So the question here is, what went wrong? That didn't just affect Uber, that affected everyone. That's Sasha Lekic, transportation reporter at Mashable. You know, Waymo took a hit as much as Uber did, but it's just in a different way, but... You know, this was a tragic, really terrible accident, and it made the whole self-driving car industry look like it couldn't go on. So, you know, it's really important that they all communicate and kind of hold a, a firm ground altogether. The Uber crash was tragic, as well as several of the recent uh, Tesla fatalities in, you know, when, when autopilot was on. This is Dean Pomelo, one of the pioneers of autonomous vehicles back at Carnegie Mellon University in the late 80s and early 90s. If you missed our previous episode, go back and have a listen to find out more about Dean's work on the early driverless systems. Uber may be an outlier to some extent in terms of its uh, focus on safety. I have pretty good uh, first or secondhand knowledge about uh, several of the others in the industry, Waymo and, uh, and Cruise, and no... Um, with pretty good authority that they take safety uh, quite seriously. And so, um, if anything, um, if you look at the California crash statistics, they err on the side of uh, caution. The National Transport Safety Bureau released a preliminary report in May into the crash, which found Uber's vehicle recognised Elaine six seconds before impact. The vehicle was equipped with all the necessary sensors – but the system took a while to actually identify what was going on. It first classified Elaine as an unknown object, it then classified her as a vehicle, and then as a bicycle. And she did have a bicycle with her, but she was walking on foot. Before it realised emergency braking was needed just 1.3 seconds before impact. The problem I see, and and the, the problem we foresaw many years ago in the deployment of these systems was this, uh, this chicken and egg problem. Unless the system is uh, perfect and you only have other self-driving cars on the road, um, there's always going to be the possibility of mistakes. And any human at the wheel or behind the wheel 
um, won't be ready to intervene quickly enough because uh, unlike in airplanes where you typically have at least a few seconds, if not minutes, to respond to a, a emergency situation, in cars it's often, you know, at most seconds and often just fractions of a second between uh, when the system realizes it's incapable of handling the situation and, uh, you know, the impending crash. The other issue at play was the way that Uber engineered their system. It was designed in a way so that it could ignore some obstacles that it came across, an issue that Dean says could be due to the way that radar sensors work. Radars in particular are known for, um, for example, giving what appears or showing what appears to be an obstacle in the middle of the road uh, ahead of a vehicle. Um, even when it's simply a, a sign or uh, an overhead sign or a bridge that you're going under, um, the radars can sometimes give you returns off of things that aren't actually an obstacle in your path. With so many potentials for false positives, the easiest option is to just avoid them by switching off the alarm. And in the case of Uber, they had disabled their self-driving car's emergency brakes to prevent erratic driving behaviour. That meant that the system couldn't react at the point that it realised it needed to, and the backup driver was expected to intervene and take over. However, the car's system was not actually designed to warn the operator that emergency braking was needed. I think that has been um, both both for, for the Uber crash and for these recent Tesla crashes, um, the expectation that stopped obstacles are very frequently false alarms and therefore can safely be ignored um, has been sort of the Achilles heel of um, many of the existing self-driving car systems and um, virtually all of the crashes that um, have, have made the, the news. After the Uber crash, the company immediately suspended their self-driving operations while an investigation was completed, and the industry scrambled to reassure the public that driverless vehicles are in fact safe. But how do you rebuild trust in autonomous vehicles after such a serious event? We'll have more after this. Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson. And a week after the Uber crash, Waymo CEO John Krafkick was interviewed at the National Automobile Dealers Association conference and said at the time that Waymo's technology could have avoided the tragedy. And I can say with some confidence that in situations like that one with pedestrians, in this case a pedestrian with a bicyclist or with a bicycle, um, we have a lot of confidence that our technology would be robust and would be able to handle situations like that one. Waymo has a long history in the autonomous vehicle space, but they aren't free from incident. There have been many reports of Waymo's vehicles being involved in crashes. However, the majority of autonomous vehicle incidents are due to other road users not realising that the vehicle is about to stop. Typically, if you look at the... Uh at the, the scenarios described in the crash reports, they're almost always the vehicle stopping short or pausing at an intersection when the driver behind wasn't expecting the vehicle to. Um, you know, and so they rear end the, the vehicle. It's like four to one that the vehicles are hit 
four or five times more often than they actually run into anything. And that's both because they have um, attentive safety drivers who take over um, when there is a threat that the, the autonomous vehicle itself will run into something. And because the software itself is designed to be very conservative, and, and I think rightfully so, um, to err on the side of caution. Um, and that was something that it, it appeared that Uber wasn't on board with. They were uh, being a little bit aggressive in uh, staying engaged or ignoring potential obstacles when, um, because there will almost certainly be um, false alarms. After several months of investigation, Uber decided in July that they would resume testing, but only in Pittsburgh and only in manual mode, with two highly trained specialists in the car. Also, the collision avoidance system is turned back on, so the vehicle can react automatically if it notices any problems, and the driver will also be monitored to make sure that they're actually alert. It's very clear that Uber's focus is now squarely on making sure their vehicles are safe and building trust with the public. But the incident actually highlights a really big problem when it comes to the implementation of autonomous vehicles. How do we deal with the serious issues like this one, which are rare but have the potential to completely turn the public off from autonomous vehicles? You know, as people develop self-driving cars, I think they are... um going to come up against edge cases, and that is where a lot of the challenge lies, I think. That's Sibi Pulikaserel, co-founder and CTO of Baraha, a company building LiDAR sensors for autonomous vehicles. How the companies approach these safely and without loss of human life is a very difficult challenge. Um, I think by having the best sensors possible, they give themselves, they arm themselves with the best information. So making sure that they have really high quality sensors is, is key for them to, to develop this at the speed they're going. Autonomous cars have driven millions of kilometres on roads across the United States and the rest of the world, collecting massive amounts of data on how to drive safely. Waymo has passed 10 million miles of autonomous driving, but most of this distance was travelled in good weather, in warmer climates, and Dean says the best way to safely navigate difficult driving conditions is to have access to the best data available. In all of these learning systems, we've seen, you know, in, in all across all domains, it's garbage in, garbage out. If you don't give it the right training data or you give it noisy training data, the system is, uh, these machine learning systems, artificial neural networks, um, are prone to learn the wrong thing. As we've mentioned many times on Moonshot before, an AI system is only as good as the data it's been trained with. And if a vehicle is not learning how to deal with complex situations like Ubers, it will face problems in the real world, which is why Waymo is training all of their vehicles in simulation. They go over and over situations and learn how to navigate in a more consistent way. And a lot of these issues being faced now are actually very similar to the problems that Dean faced back in the early 90s when working on the NavLab. What's fascinating to see is that, you know, two things that came together in those early days, uh, artificial neural networks and self-driving cars um, are sort of the hot topics again in both the broader AI community, but uh, you know, using artificial neural networks to improve uh, self-driving cars is uh, basically what everyone is doing now. All of the leading um, self-driving car companies, in, in, including Tesla, are using you know, deep learning networks to 
do much of the driving. And that was exactly what we were doing back then. So I've, I've actually, you know, suggested, I, I consult on for several of those companies and I've suggested, you know, you should go back and look at some of uh, my PhD thesis because many of the problems that they're trying to deal with today, I had to solve back then and, and had some clever ways of doing it. One of the issues that Dean spent a lot of time figuring out was how to train an autonomous vehicle for the edge cases we were speaking about earlier. Because we know autonomous vehicles rarely are involved in accidents and are mostly driven in relatively good weather conditions, they haven't really experienced as much training on how to deal with extreme situations. Which is why companies like Tesla are using their network of human-driven vehicles to collect valuable real-world data, which can then be used to train the vehicle for autonomy. One of the challenges is how do you use data collected um, from human drivers to show the variety of situations that a self-driving system might get into. So if, if for example, a person keeps the vehicle well-centered in the lane, a learning system would never learn how to recover if it somehow got offset from the center of the lane by more than a small amount that a human normally, the band the human normally stays within. And so, um, you know, a lot of uh, companies have been using simulations to try and, um, you know, show a learning system, a neural network, what it looks like when the vehicle gets far from the center of the lane, because in the live data, you never see that or very rarely see that. And so I had a number of, of clever ways in, in my PhD thesis to transform the image in software to make it appear that the vehicle was offset to one side of the lane or the other, and then adjust the correct answer, the steering direction that would be appropriate um, you know, based on a model of how you recover um, or how a person would recover if they ever encountered such an extreme situation. But assuming that you can build a reliable autonomous vehicle that can react in all types of situations without error, what does the future for those vehicles actually look like? We'll have more on that right after this break. Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and most people today will own and drive their own car. But once vehicles can drive themselves, will car ownership be necessary at all? As we mentioned in our episode on designing a driverless city, Waymo and Uber are both working to develop their own fleets of autonomous vehicles, replacing individual cars with an on-demand autonomous ride-hailing system. Think of what Uber is today, but the car that turns up will be driving itself. And this idea that you won't own your own vehicle is becoming really popular, although many manufacturers are working on autonomous vehicles that people might be able to purchase from around 2021, most technology companies working in this space see car ownership as a thing of the past. There'll be a fleet of, uh, of these automated taxis running around picking people up. Um, which I think overall um, has a, a positive benefit that we don't then have a whole car park at, here at Bosch of people's vehicles sitting in there eight hours a day doing nothing. The, the utilisation of assets um, is, is much better. 
um, and, and I think people will tend to um, operate or, or use mobility as a service in the future much more. That's Chris Woods, the Regional President of Chassis Systems Control at Bosch Australia. Bosch is working together with Mercedes-Benz to build a fleet of autonomous urban taxis that can be hailed at any time, removing the need for individuals to own cars. And it's expected that service will have their final car design by around 2022. The average driver in the US and Australia only spends about an hour on the road each day, which means their car is parked somewhere for the other 23 hours, doing absolutely nothing. If it's driving for you, the whole stat of, you know, cars are, you sit idle 95% of the time. So this is a way to really maximize how cars get used. That's Sasha Lekic again. She says the possibilities for on-demand driverless vehicles unlock massive potential for mobility, not just for existing motorists, but for people who can't drive. If you're too old or can't handle driving, this is an awesome option for you. I mean, drunk driving, this can have a huge impact on accidents and things like that. So yeah, there's definitely benefits. I think you can have really cool potential. An on-demand car service would let people summon the right size car when they want it for as long as they need it, meaning there's less general expenses in owning and running a vehicle. Like when I was growing up, it was really important to own a car in Canada. Um, But increasingly, as people live urbanized lives, I think it's less important to them to own a car and to have shared mobility. If you want a van, you get a van. If you want a, a small car, you get a small car. And you don't have to worry about servicing and filling up gas or you know, maintenance on a vehicle. You just have mobility at your fingertips. Look, I think there's a chance that my young children will never need to own a car. I think the need to own a car will definitely change. Certainly for a long time, there'll be a personal choice there. So if someone wants to own their own car and drive it, they can. Uh, but mobility as a service we talk about, so which, which effectively is upon us today with Uber, where you, you ring up, you dial up your, uh, your Uber taxi on your, your smartphone, it comes and picks you up and drops you off. That will happen in the future, but without the driver there. Vehicles as a service promises a future full of car-free households. But this is a long-term vision. For now, autonomous vehicles have to navigate roads filled with real human drivers, and that's not an easy task. When you have a mix of human and robot controlled, you're going to hit problems. You know, sharing the road with a robot is frustrating and can be annoying. Here in San Francisco, where I live, there's cars being tested all the time, and I routinely just drive around them because I'm like, they are going so slow because they're probably going the speed limit, I know, but it's like no one drives on the street that slowly, you know? So we're going to face, there's going to be some friction with these vehicles as we, as they get integrated into society. So it's not going to be all smooth and cool and slick right away. There's definitely going to be some problems. But the end goal is, of course, to make roads safer by replacing every human driver with a level 5 fully automated vehicle. But that will not happen overnight, and there will be a transition period where both people and autonomous vehicles will have to learn to share the road. And there's many different companies playing in this space designing all different types of vehicles. So it's important that we think about how we roll out this technology to make sure everyone is on the same page. The first step will be to have level four vehicles. Uh, and these cars have to coexist with, with human-driven cars. And that's probably the most challenging state of all. If all the cars were self-driving, then at least they would have predictable behavior. But because they interact with humans, 
the education probably is on humans on how to drive when there are autonomous vehicles around them. I know some cities have proposed things like dedicated lanes for self-driving cars, or maybe having certain regions where they're where they're um, confined. And those are probably the good first steps. Once these first level four vehicles hit the market, they will be pretty expensive. The sensors and computing equipment needed to actually drive these cars often double or triple the cost of the vehicle itself. Both Uber and Waymo and Cruise have the right model for these early deployments, and that is um, have a very um, expensive, sophisticated car with many sensors and a lot of computing power. And, um, you know, the cars, as I, as I understand it, the Waymo and cruise cars um, have about $300,000 worth of sensing and computing on them now. It, it's coming down as they begin to mass produce it, but for some time, uh, it's pretty clear that the technology to do the autonomous driving will be in the neighborhood, at least, of the, the cost of the vehicle itself. So it will be prohibitively expensive, I think, um, if, if only for cost reasons for people to own these systems in the foreseeable future. Another barrier to the rollout of autonomous vehicles is the rivalry between tech companies. Autonomous vehicles actually create this weird dynamic due to the research going on by both technology companies and traditional auto manufacturers. Waymo and Uber are pretty secretive about their testing, and few of the companies in this space share the test data that they actually collect. So what's going to happen if the roads are full of autonomous vehicles, all with their own sensors and all designed in different ways? How do we make sure that there's some kind of consistency in the way that these vehicles operate? And how do we make sure that they don't actually interfere with each other? I really wonder, though, when you start to have entire streets full of autonomous vehicles, how they're going to deal with each other. And that's going to be, are they going to be able to communicate with each other? But also, will the sensors now start to interfere with each other, for example? Um, you know, if you start having laser pulses flying everywhere, every autonomous vehicle is going to start picking up these pulses unless they have a very rigorous, robust method of, of reducing interference from them. Some companies are beginning to address this problem. Bosch is part of an autonomous vehicles alliance which works with Volkswagen and NVIDIA to try and standardise the way that autonomous vehicles communicate, both within the vehicle's components and also beyond. Here's Chris Woods again. Probably one of the interesting things there is is what we call V2X communication, so vehicle-to-infrastructure, vehicle-to-vehicle communications, um, where that different vehicles or or devices in the network which might be traffic lights or speed signs uh, in the future all of this data will be communicated directly to the vehicle Um, so very important to have standards in place such that that data can be shared once the whole industry develops a standardized way of communication autonomous vehicles can potentially do a lot more than just drive themselves They could then send messages to other vehicles on the roads and alert them to potential hazards so that they can reroute and get to their destination without delay. Some of the other use cases might be if you have a a motorbike around a blind corner uh, where a driver can't see, um, the motorbike can be talking to the the vehicle and telling the the vehicle that there's a motorbike there and the, the, the vehicle can then act accordingly to reduce speed and avoid accidents before they happen. 
People also need to become comfortable taking their hands off the wheel. It's an unnatural experience at first, placing your trust in a machine to do something that took you years of practice, and for many people is actually a badge of honour. Showing people how the technology will work could help. It might be a novelty to take a ride in a vehicle at first, but the experience really should be pretty mundane. And that's probably a good thing. I got a self-driving Uber when I was in Pittsburgh two years ago. Just accidentally, it happened to come up when I ordered an Uber. It wasn't actually self-driving, there was two people, but for a portion of the ride, it was self-driving. And just that mere exposure was made me so much more excited and into self-driving cars. Um, There was a really interesting study that the Society of Automotive Engineers did in Florida earlier this year where they basically just had self-driving cars you know, kind of open to the public and had a set stretch of freeway that they gave, that they set up, you know, cordoned off and said, we're just doing test runs on here. And they let people just get in the vehicle. It was just regular people. It wasn't like industry folks. It wasn't car people. It wasn't tech people. Gave them, you know, a free ride in a self-driving car. And then afterwards people were like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Or, oh, you know, I wasn't as scared. And, you know, it, it even just that, you know, a 20 minute ride really changed their perception. And I thought that was an interesting indicator of what needs to happen. Like people need to just be exposed to them and see what it is. So that's mostly the problem that they they seem really mysterious right now. (laughs) The hardest question to answer about autonomous vehicles is when will we actually see them reach the market? 2020 seems to be when you're most likely to start seeing some autonomous vehicles in a city near you, and they will likely be in a fleet. Waymo is best placed to be the ones to provide that service. They have the most data and the best reliability, plus they're already rolling the system out in the US. Uber could also provide much needed infrastructure and an existing user base worldwide. Then you should also consider Tesla, which has long said that their vehicles could potentially become fully self-driving with a simple update to their autopilot system. However, the timeline is frequently pushed back, and given they have a fairly limited track record, you would anticipate that they might need more data and research before that becomes a reality. And let's not forget the traditional car manufacturers, who might be a couple of years behind, but could dramatically lower the price to entry. But more than 20 years on from the No Hands Across America trip, Dean says we're not likely to see full autonomy in production cars anytime soon. My car, finally, after 25 years, uh, I have a Honda um, Honda that has lane-keeping assist and lane departure warning. Um, and, and those are the kinds of things that I think we will be seeing more of, maybe more sophisticated versions of them, but um, not too much more in the way of fully automated driving for decades to come. Does that disappoint you that you were driving an autonomous vehicle in, uh, in in the early 90s and now your existing Honda doesn't have those same abilities? Um, I mean, I think at the time, uh, in fact, it, in uh, 1995, we were doing this major demonstration of the state-of-the-art self-driving cars um, as part of the Automated Highway System Project, which was a federal highway administration-sponsored project was originally scheduled to be a $100 million project to do a proof of concept in the mid-90s of self-driving cars. And so we gave rides to, I think, 3,000 people from all over, both local, just 
people off the street, as well as uh, the head of the Department of Transportation in the in the U.S. over a three-day period. And as part of that pitch, you know, people were asking us, "When can can we expect to see this on the road?" And uh, at the time, we said it'll probably be about 20 years before you start seeing self-driving cars, uh, just just because of all the hurdles, both technically and administratively. And 20 years later, it's we're just about you know beginning to see these sorts of deployments. So uh, you're pretty spot on. <laughs> yeah. For example, airbags took 30 years between the time that there was a proof of concept. And when they were actually commercially deployed, and they still haven't uh, received uh, or, or had full penetration, there are still lots of cars on the roads today that don't have airbags just because they're, you know, 15 or 20 years old. And so it will be like that with self-driving cars. You know, um, uh, GM, their super cruise system, um, as well as you know Tesla's autopilot have you know, reasonably competent uh, level two or level three systems today. And those will get better. And eventually, uh, you know, you'll be able to take your eyes off the road. But it will be, I would say, at least another decade before your average person would be able to buy a system that uh, you don't have to be constantly monitoring. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media, and this episode was hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson. Research and scripting by Patrick Laverick. As always, our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder, and our cover artwork is by Andrew Millist. If you enjoy the show, please help us out by sharing it with a friend. Sharing is caring. And if you want to listen to a previous episode or just send us a message, head across to our website, moonshot.audio. And make sure you join us for the next episode of Moonshot. Moonshot.